0: Alright, so this book, like I said before, Ephesians, separates nicely into two parts. The first part is what God has done, chapters 1 through 3. The second part is what we must do, chapters 4 through 6. Uniquely in this book, Paul doesn't begin to give any instruction until chapter 4, which is kind of a neat model. Because it shows us that it's important that our actions are based on knowledge. The things we do in our life are based on the ways we think, the things that we know. And in terms of our Christian life and our Christian living, the battle begins in the mind as far as what we believe, how we view things, how we view the world, and that affects how we act. So you don't want to, as a Christian, just jump right into, here's what you need to do. You have to have this foundation laid of what God has done for you. So last week in chapter 3 we had this kind of parenthetical section in verse 1 Paul said for this reason I Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles and then he goes into this reflection on what it means to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ for Gentiles to be an apostle of the Gentiles and he kind of that's what we look at last week and then in verse 14 he picks up again with that first thought for this reason so he's going back to that first idea that he mentioned so we're going to start today in verse 14 with what Paul began talking about in verse 1, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. So he says, I bow my knees before the Father. This is another way of saying, for this reason I pray to the Father. I bow my knees means I pray. You know, sometimes we do external things when we pray, right? We might bow our head, we might close our eyes. Maybe we bow our knee or we kneel beside our bed or we look to the heavens when we pray. We can do different physical things when we pray. But notice that those things aren't required. When the disciples asked Jesus, what or teach us how to pray? He didn't say, get down on one knee, look to the heavens, squint your eyes halfway closed so you look mysterious. Maybe raise one hand like this. He just said, Here is how to pray, and he explained the prayer. The posture wasn't required. So why do we do it? Does it make our prayers heard more? If you pray with your hands lifted, does God hear your prayers louder? Is it like an amplification device? No. So why do we do it? In the same way, when we worship and we sing songs to God, sometimes we like closing our eyes if we know the words, or even raising our hands. Sometimes we stand or we sit. Sometimes we do cartwheels. Not really. But does this make God appreciate our worship more? Does it make our worship come in some different way into his throne room? No. Posture is not required, right? But it is still very important. Can you think of why? Yes? Posture affects our attitude. What's the point in going on? I've got two more paragraphs before I get there. Oh, is that in there? Okay, good job. So, let's talk for a second about a lobster. It's a man named Jordan Peterson. He's a psychologist from Canada. And in his book called 12 Rules of Life, he mentions how lobsters take on this posture. And when they come together, they're competing over kind of like who owns a territory. And who's like the alpha, right? And so they begin to kind of battle. And if you watch lobsters, a lobster who rolls over or gets rolled over and loses that battle, they begin to have more of like a humble posture because they don't want to fight anymore. But the one who won gets more of this kind of alpha posture. And the more that he keeps winning, the more he has this posture of, I'm the alpha, I am the one in charge, and everyone else around him, Sees that and notices okay that if I want to be a church I got to fight that guy otherwise I got to cower like this, and in the same way he says that those that lose, if they battle again, these lobsters apparently there's a lot of tests on lobsters when they lose and they have a posture of having been humiliated, they're more likely to lose again in the next battle in the next battle, and the one who won the battle and gets that kind of self confidence is more likely to win this next battle. So Jordan Peterson uses this to talk about us and our posture and how our posture affects how others see us and also kind of how we view ourselves. And I started thinking about this a couple years ago. I told Lindsay, back when I was applying at a job in like 2011, I was applying for my first senior position. It was no longer like web developer. It was senior software engineer. And I thought about like if I walk into the interview kind of like this, and I wondered, are they going to see me as like a leadership material candidate if I'm coming in like this? Hey, nice to meet you. It's very, very good to meet you. And so instead, I intentionally walked in like this. Not like, not like crazy, but just upright. I wanted to seem self-confident. I wanted to seem like I knew what I was doing. You can trust me. I'm a leader. And it was a posture thing. And it worked. I got the job. I mean, maybe I could have gotten it anyway. Like but the point is posture does help, right? It helps how people view you. And so, like, if you're going to walk into a crowd of people and you walk in like this and you go, hey, it's really nice to meet you, they're going to think certain things about you. But if you walk in and you're just, and you're not cocky, like, but you're just, you're comfortable, you're competent. Your head's, you know, so George Peterson says, stand up straight with your shoulders back. He wants you to feel like you're competent. But the same is true when we pray, right? If we pray like this, Or, like Giacomo, if we worship like this, Mom, Dad, Mom. <laughs> no, it's okay. But, so let me ask you a question. During those moments when you're asking them a question, are you able to also think of the words and worship at the same time? I don't know I think so. Maybe not. That would be kind of cool. Right. Now, let's say that I'm not doing that, but I'm also sitting down, and during worship I'm drawing a picture of a funny character from some video game or whatever? Do you think that I'm thinking about the words of the song or maybe like half-heartedly sort of? So there's that, or there's those that are worshiping like this. (sighs) Who do you think, which... (laughs) Or, you know, but which, which posture do you think might affect your attitude more positively in worship? One where your eyes are perhaps closed, if you know the words, where your head may be bowed, if you can. Maybe you're, maybe you're praying, or maybe you've made your hands, or, or if you're just kind of like looking around and seeing what everybody else is doing. And so, so posture matters, right? And there's this kind of funny meme about this. If you haven't seen this, this is my favorite meme of all time. This is the different worship postures. My favorite one is the Mufasa. I think it's so hilarious. But, you know, we have these different hand motions. They don't really mean that. But you might see people raising one hand or doing this or doing this. And the reason we do it is because sometimes we're responding to an emotion, right? Sometimes when we're praying, we we close our eyes and we squint our face because we're actually feeling something. And in worship, sometimes we're doing this because we feel something. But sometimes it's because we want to and we don't. Sometimes we're having a hard time concentrating in prayer and it might help us to kneel down on our bed and get into a posture of prayer. Sometimes during worship, if we can't think on the words or on God because we're distracted, it helps us to close our eyes or to raise our hands and say, God, help me to think of you. Help me to have my mind set on you. So sometimes it's a response. Sometimes it's because we're feeling nothing and we can't concentrate and we want to. So either way posture matters so Paul says I bow my knee before the father now Paul didn't expect me to spend 20 minutes explaining that to you but he was just meaning this is why I'm praying but I felt like it was a good opportunity to mention that then he says I'm praying before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named it's back on this slide the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named now there are a lot of different ideas for what that last part means every family being named on heaven and earth. But I like what um, the Barnes commentary says. He says, The idea is that they all bear the same name derived from the Redeemer. All are Christians, no matter where they are, in heaven or in earth, no matter from what nation they are converted, whether Jew or Gentile, they all have one name and one Redeemer and all belong to one family. And that makes sense given Paul's context about the Jews and the Gentiles being one in Christ He spent a lot of time talking about that in these first chapters. So I like that idea. And now we're going to look into seeing what Paul is actually praying about. So these verses, this is why I'm praying. Then he goes into what his prayer actually is. We're going to skip ahead to verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. So Paul mentions the word riches a lot in this book. He mentions the riches of God's grace in chapter 1, verse 7. The riches of his glorious inheritance, in one verse 18, the riches of his grace again in 2 verse 7, the unsearchable riches of Christ, in 3 verse 8, and here the riches of his glory, verse 16. Riches apply or imply wealth and abundance. Right? When you have riches in something, it means you have an abundance of this. You wouldn't say you have a treasure full of riches if there was one thing in it. It means a lot of things. So God is rich and wealthy in his glory. His glory is abundant. It's unending. It's infinitely glorious. Well, what is glory? Paul says, according to the riches of his glory. And we hear the word glory a lot in the church. We talk about things like the glory of God or God is glorious or we should glorify God. But what is glory? Glory. Glory has two basic definitions, all right? There's the noun, glory, and there's the verb, to glory. That's kind of confusing. But the noun, glory, basically means this. Glory is something that reflects the greatness of something else. So think of the sun. Imagine you're in a cold or a dark room, and you walk outside, and you see the light, And you feel the warmth, right? That light and that warmth reflect how bright and hot the sun are. Okay? So those things can be considered the glory of the sun. The glory is anything that reflects the greatness of something else. Now, when you notice those things, let's say you're cold and you walk into sun and you kind of feel that warmth, and you like you smile, you take a deep breath. Where you're in a dark room and you walk outside and it's kind of bright, but you can see finally. But you enjoy the brightness, you enjoy the illumination, you enjoy the warmth, you celebrate that. That's the verb to glory in. To glory in is when you respond in some way to the glory of something, it's responding to the greatness. So when you see your favorite sports team win a really important game and you're watching it with others and you celebrate together and you're all cheering and high-fiving, that's glorifying in something. So we glory in something when we celebrate the glory of something. But here Paul's talking about the first aspect of glory, God's glory, the riches of God's glory. The riches are the things that reflect the greatness of God. So Jonathan Edwards called these the glorious attributes of God, things like power, wisdom, justice, goodness, truth, the different aspects of God that make him seem so great. And here in this verse, it looks like he's talking about that that one glorious attribute, power. Because he says, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So according to God's abundant power, his abundant riches in His glorious power, according to that, that He may grant you this. So Paul is asking that we would be strengthened with power. So this is the first thing that Paul's going to say we need. This isn't an end goal. Like Paul isn't saying, I want you to be powerful so you can lift weights. He's not saying, I want God to make you strong so you can endure whatever temptation you're currently undergoing. He's not he's being very particular. There's a certain thing Paul is getting at. So what I want to do before moving on is jump ahead to verses 18 and 19 because he's not saying this. This isn't the kind of power Paul is talking about. It's something else. So let's look at where Paul's headed in verses 18 and 19 may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may feel, be filled with all the fullness of God. So this is what Paul's actually praying for, for the church, is that they would have this kind of knowledge, this kind of understanding of the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. So that's where we're headed. But along the way, there are three things Paul thinks we need in order to get there. And so he's praying for those as well. So the first thing was this. It was back in verse 16, that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Notice it says inner being, the mind. So we just looked at where Paul's headed, so we know that Paul is wanting us to have a certain kind of strength, not just any kind of strength, but a certain kind Not to run marathons, but the kind of strength required to fully understand something, to know something. So there's a kind of strength from the Spirit to help our minds comprehend and know these deep truths. And this is the first thing that Paul is praying about. That the Holy Spirit would help us to know these things, to give us the strength. So we can learn three things from this verse. First... That there are things we don't yet know about the depths and the height and the breadth and the width and of the love of Christ. There are things we don't yet know. Second, we're unable to understand those things on our own. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be asking for the Spirit's help for us to understand them. We can't understand them on our own. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. There are certain amazing things about God that we can know. First point. Second point, we can't know it on our own. But third point, the Holy Spirit is meant to help us with that understanding. And this is what Paul's praying for. This is the first thing we need if we're going to get there the Holy Spirit's help, to give us strength to comprehend these things. Second thing, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, so the second thing is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you might think this is a given, right? If you believe in Jesus, he lives in your heart, so why is Paul praying for this if he's praying about believers, isn't Christ already in their hearts in this way? Not necessarily. You might know the the letter that Jesus wrote through John to the church of Laodicea in Revelations three, where he says um, the church is neither hot nor cold; they're lukewarm. You know that that church. Revelations three. He says in three verse twenty, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. And that letter is written to a church with Christians, many of whom had gotten lukewarm. They had lost their passion, perhaps, had become more of a, a traditional thing. They were saved, but they weren't in an intimate relationship with Christ. They weren't dining with him spiritually. He was standing at their heart door of their heart knocking and, and they weren't opening up. And that was written to Christians. And so Paul's praying for this church specifically. You know, don't be like that. Have an intimate relationship with Christ. So Jesus is standing at the door knocking and he wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And this is the second thing we need. If we're going to understand these deeper truths about the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and the love of Christ and all that, we need to have strength in the Holy Spirit to do so, but we also need to have an intimate relationship with Christ. We can't be lukewarm Christians. A lukewarm Christian is not going to understand these things. They're not going to get to that level. The third thing we need to be rooted and grounded in love. So, what is the difference between being rooted and being grounded? Well, I'm thinking in terms of a tree, and this makes a lot of sense to me. A tree's roots go into the ground and they dig deep, then they spread wide. And the, 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 the deeper the roots, the wider the roots, the stronger the tree, right? So, you're rooted. In love but then you're grounded and grounded to me refers to what is then built on top of that and the stronger the roots the stronger you can build the higher the wider you can be you can see trees that have these crazy long branches and you can't imagine how are they possibly way out here it's because these roots are so strong and so he's saying both of these things are love you've got to be rooted in love and also grounded in love So the tree that rises up firmly grounded and I think the idea is that our faith is rooted in love from God and it's grounded in love to God. That's my view anyway. I think Paul's getting at rooted in love from God, grounded in love to God. The roots are the love from God and then what we build on that is love back to God. You give Him your life. You want to serve Him. You want to glorify Him in different ways. So this is the third thing we'll need. So to summarize the things we need in order to get this kind of deeper knowledge. We need mental strength with power through the Holy Spirit. We need Christ dwelling in the heart through faith. And we need to be rooted and grounded in love. So those are the three things. And now let's finally look more deeply at these verses 18 and 19 to figure out what in the world Paul is talking about. This is one of the verses that as a kid I read it and I thought... Paul, are you just trying to sound smart? Because this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? What are you talking about? In verse 19, and to know the love of Christ it surpasses knowledge. The breadth and length and height and depth. There are different ideas for what this means, obviously, like any confusing verse, but I like what Ellicott says. Ellicott's a commentator And he said that a lot of the early church fathers thought this was a reference to the cross. And that it was directly related to love in the next verse. Because when you're reading this, you're thinking, breadth of what? Length of what? Height of what? What are you talking about? Like, understanding what what exactly are these things. And the next thing you get to that makes sense is the next verse, the love of Christ. So, perhaps what Paul is saying here is, have strength to understand the breadth and length and height and depth To know the love of Christ. So, those things are referring to the love of Christ, but they say this is perhaps a reference to the cross, and perhaps what he's getting at is that you can look at the cross and look at it in many different ways, but all of it points back to the love of Christ. And you can follow those perspectives and you can trace them and your soul can pursue these different aspects of the cross, whether it's what it meant for Christ to die or what it meant for the Father to give up His Son or what the pain meant or what the blood meant, like all those things, dying on a tree, the Romans, like you can look at all these different perspectives. And so that would be the breadth and the length, the height and the depth. So the different directions of the cross all pointing to the love of Christ. So it seems to be that what Paul is saying here is these three things you need in order to fully understand all the different ways you can look at the deep, rich, vast love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And in my my view, when he says filled with the fullness of God, that's a different way of saying the same thing because God is love. First john tells us so the more you comprehend the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of christ the more you comprehend that the more you are being filled with all the fullness of god because god is love so that's what paul wants for us for this church is to fully understand these things and then we get to verse 20 now to him who's able uh, able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and think, according to the power of, at work within us. So verse 20 is clear. We know this. God's able to do more than we you know, ask or think. We know this. But it's a good reminder that God's able to do more than we ask or think because it means we can trust Him when things don't make sense. We can trust Him when hard things happen. And when you don't know how to pray because you don't have a solution, like what if there's a problem in your life you're not even sure how to pray because you're not even sure how like, how to solve this problem. And so you don't even know how to pray. It's good to know that God, even in those situations, can do more than we can ask or think. He's able. We can trust Him. Then in verse 21, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me just say here, this is Paul's prayer, not just for the churches at his time, but for our church because he says throughout all generations. So this is a prayer for us today. God wants God, I'm sorry, Paul wants God to be glorified in our church today. More than anything else. And it's not an accident that Paul began this prayer by saying, according to the riches of God's glory, and then he ends it by saying, to Him be the glory. Because that's what glory does. When you know and you see and you understand glory, the only proper response is to glorify it. Right? When you see something amazing, you want to respond in amazement. Or else something's messed up inside of you. So when you begin to really understand the love of God and the glory of God, you're going to want to glorify Him. So it makes you want to respond to His glory with love, worship, adoration, and obedience. And that's the main goal of this church we can think about things like, what should our church look like? What programs should we offer? What kind of structure should we have in place? What kind of musical style should we have? What's our method for teaching? What should discipleship look like? How do we reach the community? All these questions, but underneath all of this, the core desire should be that God is glorified. And I've often said this, but a different way. I want everything we do in this church to reflect the statement, God is great. I want someone to be able to look at how we do worship, how we do teaching, how we do kids' ministry, how we do outreach, and think they serve a great God. They clearly are impressed by their own God. They're doing this for Him. Okay, so to conclude, the last thing that I want to do is review what God has done. In these three chapters, we've been going over many things that Paul has listed that God has done for us. And with the time remaining, what I want to do is go through each one. And this is what we're going to do right before communion. So this is a good time because communion is a time to reflect on what God has done for us. And we take the bread together. We take the wine and the juice together. We partake in it. We're remembering what Christ did on the cross for our salvation. But all that that means for us too in terms of our salvation and our eternity and our inheritance and our family in Christ. So as we go over these things, reflect on them. And if you want to write some of them down in your notes, any of them that speak to you specifically, these are things we've seen in these chapters that God has done. And as soon as I end, I'll pray, and you'll play some piano, and we'll do some communion. Let's just kind of go with these together. So, what God has done. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God has predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us. God has forgiven us. God has lavished his grace upon us. God has revealed his will to us. God has united Jew and Gentile in Christ. God has given us an inheritance. God has predestined us for this inheritance. God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. God has called you to hope. Again, God has given you an inheritance. God has raised Christ from the dead. God has made us alive together in Christ. God has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has saved us by grace through faith. God has brought near those who are far off. God has made Jews and Gentiles one in Christ again. This last one was from from last week. God made Paul a minister to the Gentiles so that we could understand the mystery of the gospel being for all mankind.